Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. Our question today, how much do you know about search and rescue? And more specifically, how much do you know about how search and rescue works in your area? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that most of you have heard of search and rescue and are aware that the work that SAR units do is really important. But I also suspect that many of us don't know that much about search and rescue outfits and how they are funded and a lot of the details and in some really don't know that much about these really important local entities. So our goal here today is to help you get a lot more familiar with search and rescue outfits and how these are organized and how they operate. And then equally as important, maybe more important, I actually think that this episode might get a lot of you thinking about, maybe realizing, that you yourself might be able to make a meaningful contribution to the local search and rescue outfit in your own area. And I think hearing the story of our guest today actually serves and functions perfectly here because Cy Whitling wasn't somebody who grew up (laughs) dreaming to be in a search and rescue unit. Now, just before we get started here, I want to remind you that our Blister Summit launches this coming Sunday, February 20th, right here in Mount Crested Butte. And if you go to the show notes of this episode or go to the navigation bar of our website where it says Blister Summit, you are going to find all the up-to-date information about our Blister Summit. And this is just really shaping up to be an incredible event that we can't wait to have a whole bunch of you come to. And one thing in particular I want to say that we did update, we updated our panel sessions a bit. So there is more information about what topics we're going to be hitting for those different panel sessions. And very soon we will start to fill out some of the speakers on those panel sessions to fill out that schedule even more. So again, check the show notes to this episode where it says Blister Summit or go to the navigation bar of blisterreview.com where it says Blister Summit and you've got all the information right there and you can also register. So do it. Can't wait to see a bunch of you and ski with a bunch of you here in Mount Crested Butte. And with that, let's go ahead and talk to Cy Whitling about search and rescue. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here in Blister headquarters with Cy Whitling. Cy, welcome back to Crested Butte and to Blister HQ. It's great to be back here. You were out here. It was July, right? That's when we were hanging out here last? Yep. Okay. I believe so. And this week, <laughs> you have the pleasure <laughs> or the curse to be staying at my house, and which has been great having you. I'm sorry that We've had a lot of prep that I've needed to do in in preparation for the Blister Summit, but we were having a a late night conversation last night and I was just asking you more questions about some of the things you're up to. And I was like, you know, this really should be a conversation we do for the Blister podcast. So why don't we have you tell people why are you here in Crested Butte other than the fact, obviously, that you missed me. And, you know, you wanted to hang out and catch up. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely just here to relive the blister glory days. (laughs) Um, I think last time I was on a blister podcast was in a weird hotel in Bend that we were locked out of. And I had to guess the combination of the lock to get us into. Um, No, I'm here for a pro AVSAR course through the AAI American Avalanche Institute. Um, So I've been in that class yesterday and today. And then I've got another full day of class tomorrow. So, yeah. And as we were talking last night, two things, frankly, were coming to mind. One, I didn't know very well your own story about how you came to work 
in search and rescue. And then relatedly, I was like, man, I don't know all that much about search and rescue in general. And actually, then I was talking to Luke Kappa and some of our other reviewers, and turns out some of them felt a bit murky on exactly how SAR organizations tend to work. And so I was like, we should do this conversation because I think a lot of people ought to know. And I think your own story might actually get some people thinking about, wow, maybe search and rescue is something I myself should look into. So I think those are our objectives. Does that sound okay to you? Totally. And that's a really common thing and, and a place I was where it's like, you know that search and rescue teams exist and you know that you might really need them someday, but you also have no real idea of how they're organized and what what being on one is like, how they're funded, all of that stuff. Um, and I think it's really relevant to people that use the backcountry in the winter or the summer, um, yeah. just to have an awareness of that. So I think the way I want to do this is like, I'm putting you in the camp of like, I don't know, a normal person. You're not that normal, but like a normal person who just is really passionate about the outdoors and skiing and mountain biking, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe let's start about, well, how you got to where you're living now and then how you found yourself learning about the SAR program where you're at and actually getting involved in it. Yeah. And I think from the 10 or 30,000 foot view, that progression for me is one that's mirrored by a lot of backcountry skiers. Um, before I worked at Blister, I had done maybe three tours. I had no avalanche education. I had a rented beacon. I didn't know what I was doing. And then some guy paid me to get on a plane to New Zealand. And all of a sudden I'm in pin bindings for the first time following Paul Ford around learning, watching him talk about the snowpack and think about safety. And I've got this beacon that I know how to turn on and not much more. And, um, was definitely just really a liability in the backcountry at that time. And then I've just had a pretty steady progression of, you know, you take your Avi one and you are really scared for a couple seasons and you learn a lot. And then I've been lucky to have, um, good mentors, some through blister and some just like in the town I live in, that have helped me kind of move along that trajectory. Um, so like one of those first guys, Paul is obviously knows what he's doing in the backcountry, Um, and he, he, he's just very kind to like pick up my slack and help me get started on the correct path. Um, and then David Steele, who's also reviewed for blister, um, was really good at getting me into things that felt like they were above my, level of expertise and then helping me navigate them. And so with those two guys, not necessarily doing anything organized for me, but just putting me into situations and helping me solve problems that arose in them. I think that's really common for backcountry skiers, right? We have mentors that help us grow in a myriad of different ways. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, um, after that New Zealand trip, I moved to Driggs, Idaho and signed up for the first Avi one that I could get into, which was like, I think it was early November and like a really shitty snowpack. And, um, and luckily just signed up for the first everyone I could get into. And luckily the two people teaching that are two people that live a few blocks from my house now. And I interact with regularly and I feel like I've learned an incredible amount from and continue to learn from. Um, and so again, mentors, but mentors that I gained in a, in a class setting. Um, and kind of through that I've, tried to become a more competent backcountry user and became more aware of search and rescue's role in the area I lived in, met some people that I really respected and learned that they were on search and rescue and became interested in it from that direction. Um, and then actually applied to our search and rescue team um, for a recruiting period and then got search and rescued um, <laughs> by Jackson Hole, the uh, uh, Teton County, Wyoming search and rescue actually um, I can, I can go into how I met search and rescue. Um, there's a, there's a cave system like nine or 10 miles from my house. That's pretty large and cavers are really good at not sharing beta because caves are really dangerous. Um, and, uh, one of two of my best friends and I got the information we could from the internet, put all the gear that we thought we could need together. And basically it's a, 
you hike up and you repel a pretty big repel off like a big ice waterfall into a cave and then you navigate a bunch of repels and chokes and crawls and terrible stemming just miles of stemming um and then you're supposed to come out the other end and we didn't we got stuck in like a maze section um and ended up spending i think like 25 hours we hadn't packed for overnight but we had gear like you know we'd all spooned on a rope and trash bags basically. And we knew that search and rescue had been called because we'd had told our partners to call 911 if we weren't home by a certain time. And that time had passed hours ago. Um, so we, we were in there and we finally figured out our own way out, figured out the exit. And as soon as we knew where the exit was, we had this whole plan hatched because we didn't want search and rescue to have to drop in from the top and do the whole cave system. And then we were already out. So we had this whole plan hatch where I was going to be the first one out and I was going to, we were in knee pads and a climbing harness and all this stuff. I was going to tear off all my clothes and sprint to the trailhead in my underwear to tell Sar not to come up. And luckily Sar was like a hundred yards down the trail from where we popped out. And we were like, Hey guys, we're the people you're looking for. We're filthy and hungry and really sore, but here we are, we can go home. Um, and then weirdly I got the, like, a few weeks to a month later, I got the email. Hey, we've considered your application to Teton County, Idaho search and rescue. We'd like you to come in and interview. And the, one of the guys who interviewed me was also the guy who took all my information at the trailhead a month before as I came out of that cave, um, which was a funny, like I was already going to be on search and rescue, but now I'm very interested having seen what you do firsthand. Okay. So that experience itself was you're saying not the driver to get you to go to search and rescue. You were already leaning that way. Yeah, I'd already, basically how our team works is we have recruiting classes where there's a form on our website that you can put your information into. And when we reach a appropriate number of people that have done that, we take the next steps, which are interviews. And then we accept certain people for um, knots training, knowledge needed to orient for the team. And then from there, we have people that become full on members of the team. Um, and I'd already started that process and then got more intimately acquainted with the other end of that process. Okay. So let's maybe back up for a second. I guess if people are like, all right, search and rescue, probably people have heard the term, but let's back it up a bit to talk about like maybe just search and rescue in the United States how centralized or decentralized is this? Is there like the search and rescue king or pope? Tell us what the kind of organizational elements look like for search and rescue. Yeah. So in the US, and I can't really speak to other countries, I know like some European countries have wild, um, efficient and, and centralized search and rescue programs. But in the US, search and rescue teams are generally tied to a local organization. And in most U.S. states, that's a sheriff's office. So that means that they're county-based. Um, in like Alaska and Texas and maybe a couple other states, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, that'll be uh, state troopers instead of uh, sheriff's office. But it's the same thing, right? It's a law enforcement agency. On top of that, certain areas, mostly national parks as far as I know, have built-in search and rescue teams. So, right, there's Denali climbing rangers, um, Grand Teton National Park has the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers. So all of these teams are either operating under a national park or a, a sheriff's office or some kind of law enforcement agency. And they all have this primary goal of helping people who are stranded in a non-urban environment. Um, and one of the big things that in the US we have in common is I, I would say all, but then somebody will find the one team that doesn't. Um, but they, we operate under the ICS, which is the Incident Command System. Um, and that's this chain of command and system of organization that was developed after a really fatal wildfire season um, where a bunch of organizations were interfacing really poorly and it led to a bunch of mistakes that cost people's lives. Just inefficiencies in communication and organization that were terrible. So it's this really simple and kind of annoying, you have to take terrible online classes with stupid quizzes, but it's this system of management that we all run under. And what that means is anybody that is trained in under an ICS system can interface with anyone else. So multi-agency cooperation is much more accessible because of that ICS. Okay. So then maybe you can paint a picture for 
what local search and rescue entities operations look like in various places? Yeah. So the starting place for learning about your local search and rescue, I would always say is to Google your county name search and rescue, because it's probably tied to your county. Um, chances are it's tied to your county. So for me, I live in Teton County, Idaho. The Idaho is really important because it's a county. I live in Teton County, Idaho. That doesn't, Teton County, Idaho does not actually extend to most of the recreation I do from my house. A lot of that recreation is in Wyoming. And in Wyoming, just across the Teton range is Teton County, Wyoming Search and Rescue. So they cover that and we have the same county name and all of that. Um, so if you're trying to learn more about your search and rescue team, look up your county search and rescue. They should have a website. If they don't, then this is a place that you can help them. <laughs> okay. And so tell us more about your own organization. Yeah. So with us, with Teton County, Idaho Search and Rescue, um, I obviously have not been part of a bunch of teams or experienced how a bunch of teams are organized, but we're a branch of the sheriff's office, but we operate pretty independently in a lot of ways in that we interface with them well. We have a liaison from them. We're comfortable with their systems. Um, right now, we're actually working to train some of their guys on some things. But a lot of this is up to the discretion of your sheriff in your county. And that's an elected position, which is pretty wild when you look at the magnitude of the job that person has. And, you know, with a sheriff, we always think about law enforcement stuff and how many speeding tickets they're giving. But for us, what sheriff we have really matters for how efficiently search and rescue can work and how much funding we get and how seriously other organizations take us and a whole myriad of things that happen behind the scenes and are really important. And so I'll just harp on this once, but local elections really matter and stuff like your sheriff, if you're a skier and you don't really care about law enforcement, like who your sheriff is still really matters. And some teams, their sheriff is on the team and an active member. And that can be really good or it can lead to problems on the team. Um, but it's a really important thing to remember is that search and rescue is generally part of the sheriff's office and how that sheriff operates will dictate how search and rescue operates. All right. Say more about this. Give us some obvious positives or where this can go wrong. Like I got to be honest, I don't, I've never spent much time in my life thinking a lot about. I mean, we don't, right? Like, and I'm totally this way too. You go, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to keep things from going south. And if they do, I'm going to call 911 and a bunch of really qualified people are going to make it happen, um, which is how it should work and how it generally works. But for that to happen, a lot of other things have to occur. And some of those are just things like your sheriff being proactive in their relationships with other cooperating agencies. So your sheriff being on good terms with the sheriff of the next county over so that they can deliver resources when you desperately need them. Um, things like that, where the it's it comes down to often relationships between two cops, <laughs> which is a weird thing for skiers to be caring this much about, but how those two people interface and how much they respect each other and how much they respect each other's teams can really affect the magnitude of a response that can be launched quickly. And then also just on the nitty gritty stuff, um, we don't want to be like worst case scenario, we're dealing with a fatality. When you're dealing with a fatality and like an avalanche is a crime scene that an avalanche with a fatality on it is a crime scene. And so as a search and rescue member, you're reliant on your um, county's coroner and your county's sheriff in that situation because often you're on the you're at a crime scene that they're not on. So you're representing your sheriff at a crime scene that is a fatality, um, and so that ties into a lot of like when do we stop doing CPR? When do we decide if someone's dead? And having a relationship with your sheriff and with your medical advisor um, and with your coroner that's has good communication and you have good um, set operating procedures is really important because when people die outside in America, we sue people. Um, and that can have huge long-term ripple effects for a search and rescue team. A lawsuit like that can really change how they can operate. Even if they did everything right in that time, if the relationships with the governing bodies are bad, that can lead to really crappy repercussions that are still bouncing around five or 10 years later. Um, 
And that's like nitty gritty, not super important to the average person stuff. But if you're thinking about your SAR team and how they're responding, there's a good chance that that kind of stuff affects or has historically affected their response. Let's stay on this notion because I bet some people listening to this will be like, wait, what? If there's a fatality in the backcountry, an avalanche fatality, that is a crime scene. Say more about this. Well, I'm not incredibly dialed on this front. Um, and I'm sure given the membership of Blister listeners, one of you understands this really well and I better than I do. But you have a cause of death that hasn't been determined, um, right? There's a lot of ways you can die in an avalanche. And there's a lot of people that can be dead in some ways and can be resuscitated, right? Um, and so making that call to stop doing CPR or to treat it as a body recovery instead of a live search or all of those things tie into this big web of liability, um, right? America's really good at <laughs> suing over perceived liabilities. And as a search and rescue team member, you're covered by Good Samaritan laws and all of that stuff, but there's still a lot of potential for people to be upset and to look for a target for that upsetness and look for a reason that their loved one died and that can often fall upon rescuers. And so, again, not to harp on it too much, but this is a, a responsibility that comes because you view search and rescue as like, at least I used to, like a bunch of yahoos, like a bunch of cowboys who are just super badass and like come in, get you out and you're good to go. They give you a high five in the parking lot and you're good to go. And sure, that can be how it works, but there's a lot that goes into that, that like successful quick rescue. So in your particular story, what got you to the point where you were like, I mean, listening to you talk, I could imagine somebody being like, screw that. I'm not going to bother with any of that. That sounds like a hassle and it sounds like you get a call and maybe in the middle of the night and you're supposed to go out there. Like what were some of the things for you personally, I want to start there, that were kind of the biggest drivers for why you thought, I want to step up and do this. And and you've been involved with search and rescue now for how long? Um, I think I'm like between three and four years right now. Um, yeah. So maybe I'll just start off with the no. Um, I was at a event two weekends ago, um, representing the team doing fundraising. And I had a guy come up, we were at the ski resort and this snowboarder came up and he's like, Hey, you guys search and rescue. You're, you looking for volunteers? And we're like, yeah, we're always recruiting. There's a form on the website. We'd love to have you apply. Um, and he went, cool. I just moved here and the search and rescue where I'm from, they just wanted me to go to a bunch of meetings and I just never got to do shit. And I, it was terrible. So like, hopefully you guys are cooler than that. Um, if that is how you feel at all, this is not the podcast or the thing for you. Um, it is not cowboy shit. If you want to do cowboy shit, go make bad decisions in Avalanche Train and save your friends. Um, search and rescue can devolve into that, but the goal is not to do that. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of busy work. It's a lot of um, note taking. It's a lot of things that have very low sex appeal. Um, but if you're the kind of person that wants to either has been part of a place and have been given a lot by a place or moved somewhere that they love you and you're an, a recreationalist, you should consider volunteering with your search and rescue team because it's one of the most rewarding things you can do for your community. Um, right. There's a lot of well-written articles right now talking about how mountain towns are dying. Um, I agree with a lot of the points they're making. If you don't want to feel existential dread when you read articles like that, Volunteer at a worthwhile organization in your area. It might not be search and rescue, but search and rescue is a great place to start if you're the kind of person who goes hard outside. Um, volunteerism is good for where you live. Volunteerism that has a tangible impact is good. And obviously we're not doing this for ourselves, but feeling like you can actually make a difference is huge, especially again in this day and age of everything is broken and ski towns are losing their soul and nobody can afford to live here anymore. Um, and that, that applies if you, if you're a crusty old person who remembers when it was a fixed grip double and pow lasted for a week, or if like you're the, every stereotype that person hates, right? If you're the tech bro who moved in with the sprinter van and bought the house that nobody could afford and you go hard in the backcountry, and you want to be part of this place and invest in this place and not just exploit it, Think about volunteering and search and rescue is a great place to, to do that volunteering. 
I was also talking with our friend and reviewer, Eric Friesen. I told him that you and I were going to be having this conversation. And one of the things that to kind of just piggyback on what you were saying, Eric really was talking about if you are new to a community, this can be an incredibly palpable way to come in and contribute. And um, he, before I had gotten kind of your take on that, Eric was underscoring kind of that same point. And I thought that makes a lot of sense. Like you said, if you're the new person in town or you've been here for a very long time, there is something very, very palpable about I'm going to be involved if and when somebody in the community is in trouble. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. It's a very tangible giving back to the community. And then there's all of these less visible aspects that are even more better for getting, for plugging you into a community, right? So you say, say you move to a, you move, you, you just move to a mountain town from whatever place you came from and you're trying to be part of this place and you're trying to make friends and you're trying to figure out recreation here. And you want like the, the term local gets thrown around too much, but you want to be a local. You want to feel like a local. You want to own this place. Search and Rescue gives you that because number one, you're probably, if you make it onto a team, you're probably interacting with a bunch of people who really know these hills. They have spent a lot of time here. They're really educated. They really care. They really give a lot of themselves to this place and these people. So that's huge. You're plugging your, that, that becomes a group of peers that, you're not going to get by going to a bar in a ski town. Um, and then on top of that, you get this knowledge of terrain, right? Where a lot of search and rescue training is based on past incidents. And a lot of conversations you have on a search and rescue team are based on, well, like, remember when that happened there, what if it happened here? How would we react to that? So you move to a new place and maybe you've come here on trips a couple times and you've skied some stuff or you've mountain biked some trails Cool. Joining a search and rescue team is how you find out what goes wrong here and what places people like to frequent, what seasons have more chance of you having a bad time, all of those things. So you get this human element of like you're around a bunch of people who, in my experience at least, are a really good influence on both you and the community. And again, that can vary by team. Some teams are good old boys clubs that are too much like crappy cops who are, you know, play and dress up and some teams are really legit um but with my team it's been the kind of people who honestly i'm reasonably young i think i'm one of the youngest people on our team the kind of people that i want to grow up to be how old are you now i'm 28 now yeah and so i, I think i joined when i was 25 and so yeah like like freeson said you become you just get on this fast track to being to, to knowing the right people, knowing the right places, and being in a continued learning and growth mindset, um, which you just don't get when you move somewhere. Moving somewhere as an adult sucks, especially during COVID. You got to make friends and you got to figure out recreation and like all of these things. And you have this imposter syndrome of like, everybody knows I'm not from here and don't know what I'm doing. And like, join search and rescue. You don't have any of that. <laughs> want to talk about another benefit. And I guess we could say this is more of a personal benefit or selfish benefit. I don't view it that way. It's just a benefit, but you're going to increase your own knowledge and capabilities, right? Yeah. It's continued education. Yep. So for your own benefit, right? When you're out with your friends and something goes down, really good chance you're going to be learning some things that will come to be quite beneficial. Totally depending on what your personality type is. Um, given my personality, yes, but that also just means that I'm to I'm dialing it way back. I am taking a lot less risks than I was five or six years ago. And part of that, you know, I'm getting older. I was 22. That's like peak dumb dude shit time, right? <laughs> um, and now I'm 28 and hopefully I'm maturing a little bit. Um, but you become really aware of the potential consequences of a mistake. And yeah, I'm gaining a lot of skills and a lot of experience and knowledge. And for some people, yeah, that gives them confidence. And for me, that just scares the crap out of me. Well, okay. The, you're actually jumped to like what my kind of next point was going to be. But I think, and or correct me if I'm wrong, I think you would still say your knowledge base, your capabilities 
are greater than they would have been. Not We're not talking about your confidence or what, totally. what level of risk you're willing to assume. I think that's where I want to go in a minute. Yeah. But just as somebody being like, oh, okay, so yeah, if I were to get involved with my community search and rescue team, I'm going to become a more capable, more informed person, more knowledgeable person in the backcountry. Totally. And I always think of it in terms of assets and liabilities, right? Like if you're on a, if you're outside, you're, there's, it's pretty impossible to be truly neutral. You're always either going to be an asset or a liability. And that can be just with a single partner or with a bunch of partners or on a SAR team or whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, like continued education, more experience, more skills development, more practice, like gets you that it, it, it helps change you from a liability to an asset. And I mean, just like in my own personal progression, right? I go to New Zealand with Paul, nothing ever went sideways in New Zealand because coastal ass snowpack and Paul's smart and we're not pushing it. <laughs> but if that had happened then, I couldn't even, like it took me 12 tries to get in and out of my tech toes, right? I'd be like at the toe of a slide trying to figure out how to put skins on and be a real junk show. Um, and now I think I would be a pretty useful asset in any kind of avalanche situation. Um, and and the same goes for summer stuff, but I think for the purposes of blister and just also what I've been doing this week, like that the winter side is really front of mind right now. Yeah. And the other thing too is joining a search and rescue team. I mean, I guess this is, I'm jumping another segue for you. Um, but joining a search and rescue team makes you aware that it's not, that getting rescued isn't magic. <laughs> I, I feel like I totally had this sense of security of, well, at least where I'm going has cell phone service. I'm gonna call 911 and they'll be here pretty quick and they'll know what to do and they'll have it handled. And the reality is you're going to get the most competent people that are available with the gear that is available. And if the weather's shit, that might not be a lot of people or a lot of gear. And regardless, the process of getting them to you is going to be a minute. So my own personal budget for how long I wait for help if something went really south, like how much gear I pack to be safe and comfortable, stationary, say I have a, a partner tib fib far from help. Um, the amount of gear I carry for that has grown wildly as I've become more aware of how long it would take for those people to get to me. That's a great point. And I think we should stay on it for a minute we've kind of touched on this, but you have been out in some very heavy situations. And when you just a minute ago, were talking about, I have really dialed back my own acceptable level of risk or what level of risk is acceptable to you. This is part of, because what you have seen and witnessed, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, there's been a, a, a handful of incidents I've been involved with. We aren't that busy, but like, yeah, this December I was on a double fatality. Um, and I had already been on the, like, I am not going to die skiing train for a while before that. And that just really hammered that home. Um, I think I came home and said something like, I'm not sure how long I can have a sustainable relationship with skiing big lines in the backcountry." Um, and if, if that's not how you feel, that's great. I'm glad that people are confident in getting after it. I love watching ski movies. Your edit is sick. But for me personally, yeah, it's really been a sobering force in how I view my relationship with the mountains. Okay, so why? I'm curious if you can unpack that for us. What really changed for you or what were the different things that you saw or thought through where you're just like, I'm, I'm dialing this back? Yeah. So I think for a lot of us, um, all of this stuff is cyclical. And if you've taken an AVI one, you've probably seen that chart of like super confident. And then you take an AVI one and you're scared crapless for a couple seasons and you gain confidence again. And then something happened, like an, uh, you're near to a slide and you lose that confidence. And I think that has for me, and I think for a lot of my peers, that has two main ways that it's expressed. And that's in the decisions you make in terrain and conditions, and then also in the gear you carry. So the decisions are pretty easy, right? And all of these things I truly think are cyclical. And so for me, I'll have like two or three, the last two or three years, I was steadily skiing bigger lines every year um, in maybe more questionable AVI conditions. Um, because 
I, I, it's very easy to hook me on skiing long, steep couloirs in POW. That is an incredible feeling. And I got a bunch of confirmation bias of, I had a year where I skied one line in bad snow in that year. And I, like, I'm not, the Tetons are full of really cool people skiing crazy stuff. I'm not that guy. I'm not that great of a skier. I don't get after it as hard as all of the people who are actually tagging sponsors in their Instagrams, right? But for me, at my skiing level, I was doing stuff that I couldn't believe I was doing. I was so stoked on what I was doing. And that's great. It was a, a great couple seasons. And then um, the uh, the the toll of watching incidents occur in the area around me. Um, my partner and I always talk about the degrees of separation between us and a fatal or near fatal incident shrinking. Every year we live in the Tetons, we feel like those things get closer to us. So, right, you move to a new place and there's an avalanche fatality. Chances are you don't know that person. You don't really know. You haven't skied what they were skiing. Somebody died in an avalanche in the town you live in. And it's, it doesn't really change how you interact with skiing, I don't believe. But then the next person that dies is the friend of a friend of a friend or the next person that has a near, like it doesn't have to be a fatality. It can be a, somebody gets slid and they got lucky or they tip, you know, they slide and have big injuries and get flown out, whatever it is. And those things just shrink gradually. I truly believe the longer you spend in a cohort of people who are skiing an avalanche terrain, the closer that stuff gets to you as an, as a new backcountry skier. And, um, that, it, it feels like this train coming at you with an inevitable, it's going to be something traumatic. And my partner and I have talked about like, <laughs> it, 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 who's it, who, who would it be and how would it hurt us if it was one of our friends? Um, and you know, obviously how would it hurt them? How would it hurt the community? What kind of impact it has? And I think we all know that last year we had a, several high profile incidents with people who were really involved in their community, people who were really special. Um, and, so when that, when it feels like that train is coming inevitably, my reaction is to tone it back. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be in the group with that guy. I don't want to be anywhere near that. I don't, it honestly, like at the darkest moments, it, I don't want to be part of a sport that that happens in. Um, so that's the, that's the decision-making end of it. It's those, trying to keep those degrees of separation at a tolerable level. Um, and then on the gear side of it, that I think especially swings like a pendulum regardless of avalanche incidents where like you get into backcountry skiing and you've got a 60 liter pack with the freaking kitchen sink in it, right? We all did that. And then you do a bunch of tours where you don't need X, Y, Z and you cut 10 pounds. And then you have a tour where you really would have used that and you put it back in your pack. And I feel like for me, it's probably like three year cycles of going from like too heavy of a pack to too light of a pack. Um, and people who do this professionally, and you're listening to this and you're like, well, I've got my stuff dialed. Yeah, totally. You do. I think this is really coming from a recreational perspective. If you're getting paid to ski or you're a guide or a forecaster or whatever, I'm not sure that this is as relevant to you because your systems are dialed and you, and you manage them consistently. But for those of us that are just growing as backcountry skiers, I, you could let, draw a chart of pack sizes in liters or pack weights in pounds and watch it follow a really consistent trajectory for a lot of us. Um, and so I was on a, I was on a downswing of pack weight. Um, and I still am in a lot of situations, but being on SAR going in to help people who don't have what they need, um, I am more likely to carry more things in my personal pack. And right. For me, a lot of it comes down to what are the chances you're going to spend a night out? If you're really confident, you're not going to spend a night out, then you don't carry a whole lot of things that I'm carrying now. And I'm still, when I tour, I'm very confident that I'm not going to spend a night out, but I could get a call out and be going into a situation where I would never go into as a skier at a time of day, like we never get call outs at 10 in the morning on a bluebird day. Um, right. It's always like four 30 as the sun's about to set and the storm's about to roll in and all of that crap. So having that stuff in your pack really pays off in those situations. Talk a bit more just about response times. You made the comment 
you were like, yeah, I used to go out and be like, ah, I'm still in cell reception. And that lent level of safety in your mind. And it sounds like that has now changed a bit for you. So talk a bit about even on a pretty good scenario, good case, maybe not best case, but good case. Somebody's stuck, somebody's been out, somebody's lost, somebody's hurt. A call goes into 911 and then you take it from there and just help people give a kind of realistic sense of a range of times for, you know, how long till help actually arrives. Yeah. Well, I think I think this is Paul's joke I'm stealing, but um what does a what does a European guide carry in his pack? It's a cell phone and two cigarettes, one for you and one for the client while you wait for the helicopter, right? Like some places have ridiculously fast response times and some places don't. And regardless of where you are, the weather conditions really affect those response times. Um, So Teton County, Wyoming Search and Rescue has a helicopter. They have a bunch of guys trained on short and long haul. They're really good at doing helicopter extractions. And there's a pretty good chance that if it's a pretty simple injury and the weather's in the right place and it's not storming and it's not dark and yada, yada, yada. And they're not on another call. That's become a thing, right? They, we can all get called at the same time to do different things. They can come and grab you pretty quick. I don't know their response times, but they're quick. Um, for us, wait, when you say quick 60 minutes or less 60 minutes, I would be impressed by, um, because right. So what I haven't touched on is most, uh, the search and rescues, I have interfaced with and have and am involved in or volunteer. So there's nobody sitting in a building ready to come save your butt. There's a bunch of average people working as electricians and teachers and nurses and doing whatever they're doing who are getting a page from dispatch to get to a specific building and then get from that building to the closest access point to you. So yeah, you can get lucky. We've had callouts where we had team members snowmobiling two minutes from where the callout was, and they were on scene immediately. Like those people called nine one one, and I bet we had people there in fifteen minutes. That's really cool. That's luck. That's not how it actually works. Um, for us, we don't really like try to train to any specific response time or anything like that. And the other thing, I'm just going to throw this in there. If you are thinking about joining search and rescue and you work from home with a flexible schedule, you are an asset because if you are the kind of person that can get that call and drop everything and be wherever you need to be immediately, you don't have kids, you're not dealing with childcare, you don't have to tell your boss why you're leaving. That is huge. And that is honestly like a big part of why I've continued to become more involved in search and rescue is like, I have a flexible schedule. I can be available. It doesn't hurt anyone for me to bail on work. Um, but what you're dealing with is a bunch of people all over the place trying to get to a meeting point, figure out what is wrong with you, and then figure out the appropriate response for you. So with a helicopter, right, we can work with Air Idaho. We can get people anywhere in our county very quickly if the weather's right. We can be on scene within two hours of calling 911 if things line up. That's still two hours and like two hours outside in the winter when you're hurt and bleeding and panicking and cold and the storm's getting worse. Like that's a really long time. Um, So I'm not saying you need to be prepared to self-rescue, but you do need to be realistic about your expectations. You're not calling patrol and they're dropping from the top shack with a toboggan. Right. Yep. I think that frankly is a good thing to maybe just remind people of. Yeah, yeah, we it's 2022. We can do a lot of really cool stuff. We can't get a bunch of people off work to you that quickly. Especially because a lot of a, a lot of what we're doing is risk management of risks to our team members in a situation where we'd go get you. And if it's, you know, if it's a low avi day and you like pull a knee on an exit, that's one thing, but that's not often what we got called out for. We get called out for because the avi danger is messed up and you got slid or you got your sled really stuck because a bunch of snow just fell um, and you can't walk out because you don't have snowshoes and you you might not even be aware of the avi danger, but we're very aware of the avi danger and you're in a terrain trap and we need to figure out how to mitigate that before we can get to you. So those are all the things that are happening after you call 911. We've been talking a lot about 
winter rescues, snowy rescues. But tell us a little bit more if you have a good sense of are there more calls for search and rescue during the winter as opposed to the summer? What types of activities are people doing? Like help us understand when search and rescue is going out and why. Yeah. And this is a really interesting thing. I think you'll learn a lot of stuff you didn't really care to know about your community's recreational habits by being more involved in search and rescue um, because it definitely varies where you are, what the recreational opportunities are. Where I'm based, Teton County, Idaho, um, winter, we don't have a lot of ski terrain that we cover. Um, we In Idaho, it's mostly the Big Hole Range and Palisades. Um, and most of the users that we're dealing with are actually accessing from out of county into our county on snowmobiles in the winter. That's pretty classic scenarios for us. And it's you wrap a snowmobile around a tree and something's wrong with you, or you get your snowmobile stuck and it's dark and you can't walk out, or you pop a slide. Um, where you live might change based on that. I've had some really interesting conversations with guys in this class about what that looks like here. Um, so winter for us is a lot of motorized users and it's always an interesting thing because we live in a ski town. We have a lot of skiers in the team. We have some really strong snowmobilers, but we definitely have more strong skiers than snowmobilers and we're going to help snowmobilers. Um, so it, you, you have these interesting conversations with people who think they are too cool for skiing and don't take you as seriously. Um, or, yeah, it, it, it leads to some interesting things in the winter. And education is a lot more challenging because they don't want elitist skiers in their skinny pants telling them what to do. Um, and that's not not like that. that's changing and that's growing. But traditionally, typically, snowmobiling doesn't have as much of a culture of avalanche education and just backcountry safety as skiing. Um, and then shoulder seasons get really weird because... If you live in a mountain town, you probably have skiable snow up high and maybe mountain biking, definitely hiking, definitely trail running down low through a month or two in the fall and spring. And that's when our responses get more complicated because we basically have to have all of our gear staged and ready. We need to be able to respond on dirt bikes or quads or snow machines or skis or on foot. And luckily, Mud season in ski towns, everybody's in Moab. We don't have to worry about that many people being out making terrible decisions, right? <laughs> it, it gets pretty empty. We have less call outs in mud seasons. That's changing. That's changing for a lot of teams. But for seriously, everybody in Teton Valley is in Moab for a month in the fall and spring, and we just sit around not getting calls. It's great. Um, summer is interesting. And again, this will really depend on where you are, right? If you have a lot of sport climbing or trad climbing or whatever, you might have more of that. We really don't. The Teton County, Idaho doesn't really have climbing. Um, I'm sure somebody's really mad at me and has yeah. like some route he's developed right. boulders or Screw something. You, but like, <laughs> I mean, whoever you are, you're not getting hurt and calling us. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Keep up the good work yeah. in your secret climbing zone. <laughs> Yeah, if somebody's like trad climbing in the big holes, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> um, but we have motorized users. We have a bunch of um, dirt bikes. We have four-wheelers. And then we've had a proliferation in recent years of side-by-sides or razors. Um, and those are interesting because they're less intimidating to drive. They're less intimidating to rent. And you're really, really cool until you're not. They feel really badass until you're really stuck or you've rolled it or whatever, right? And legally, there's all of the like, yeah, they poach single track, they poach trails they shouldn't be on. And then shit goes south and you've got a cooler full of cores and a totaled side by side and it's getting dark. And then we, we've dealt with some like dog walkers and trail runners and mountain bikers haven't been as much of a thing. I'm sure that's going to continue to grow. Um yeah, the summer is a pretty diverse group of users as well. And then also all seasons, there's the potential to be collaborating with other nearby agencies on whatever weird situations they end up in. Um, and right, so I'm, I don't even know, but as the crow flies, I'm very close to Grand Teton National Park. So Grand Teton National Park has the whole park service. They have the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers. 
They have Teton County, Wyoming Search and Rescue as resources. They also have us as resources. And there's a lot of situations that just require a lot of semi-trained manpower, Um, like missing person searches. There's really high profile one in the Tetons this summer. Um, That was actually one of several. There were several pretty big missing person situations in the Tetons. And that's stuff that is maybe not as urgent because we don't know the situation. Usually you find out about a missing person after the the intense time has gone by. It's not like you get a call, hey, I just saw an avalanche, we need you here now. But it's really challenging for other reasons because it's a large, complicated response and you're trying to search areas thoroughly and document what you've searched and document clues and keep everyone working as efficiently as possible. And so that's stuff where SAR teams are collaborating with a huge number of organizations, sheriff's offices, and um, just everybody that honestly is like educated under this ICS incident command system ends up in the same place with the same common goal, which is a, it's not sexy at all, but is a really, I think, inspiring thing to be part of and a really like community. It's a, it's a show of community in an interesting way. Talk a bit more about what you're doing out here in Crested Butte. Yeah. Um, so I just took a pro AVSAR course. Um, and what that is, is an avalanche course that's just, um, aimed towards professional rescuers. Um, it's interesting. I had read the curriculum before I came here. I didn't realize how ski patrol or heavy it was going to be. Meaning the people that are taking the course with you. Meaning there's 12 people in this course and one of them isn't a patroller and that one is me. (laughs) Um, and I, I understand it's like a really good, it's a, it's a lot of skills that patrollers obviously have to have. Um, but for me, I'm in this course because I'm at a place in my avalanche education where I am very uninterested in snow science and forecasting. And I know that's not a cool thing to say, but my relationship with snow science has been that I just use it to justify bad decisions. <laughs> um, and I'm, and I know that there's a lot, and I have access to a lot of mentors who are really good at it. And I have a great avalanche center. The, yeah, Bridger Teton Avalanche Center is great. I read their reports, I trust them, all of that. But what this course is aimed at is rescue, just hard skills. It's no interpreting data, it's a bunch of different scenes, a bunch of different scenarios, and how do you respond to them? How do you keep a scene organized? How do you, handle all of these things. Um, and why I'm in this course specifically comes back to that December incident, um, where I've trained a lot with my team at home and I've taken my, you know, personal recreational classes. Um, and I got, I became part of a pretty big scene that had a lot of things working against us very quickly. Um, we had lost comms, our, our radio repeater had gone out and we didn't know that until we were on scene. We had a lot of members of the public on scene. We ended up with a private helicopter on scene. Um, we were searching for people with no beacons. The members of the public who showed up had no avalanche training or gear. Um, and so it led to, and I was, and it just, it led to a very large scene that um, I think a lot, I think we did the best with what we had but it was a pretty crappy hand to be dealt. And I came home from that really motivated to be more of an asset to my team in those situations. And to be clear, those situations for us are really rare. That was really an anomaly. Just like having a double fatality, having it that early, it was the first time the skiing had been, the snowmobiling had even been worth doing, like all of that. But I came away from that feeling a little bit naked and vulnerable and wanting to become more of an asset, wanting to do a lot better in that. Um, and that is what led to this course. This was basically the course that had an opening and I was able to get into it and get down here. And it's just the hard skills that I want to be good at. So can you say just a bit more about some of those hard skills that you've been learning? Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the stuff this course is focused on, we've also been focusing on at home with our team. So I'd like First of all, big thanks to the guys who have been running our trainings, Don Sheriff and Jason O'Neill, and those guys have done a really good job of preparing us for this. But it's a lot of taking the skills that you cover briefly or somewhat in depth in a rec one of like companion rescue. How how do you actually do a beacon search as well as possible? How dialed can your find search be? How do we probe? 
what is strategic shoveling? Um, and we do a lot more strategic shoveling in classes like this than you do in your, um, you, right. You don't just yank the pack out of the ground by the st strap, like actually move some snow, feel how winded that makes you. Um, and then it's a lot of more organized rescue techniques. So probe lines, um, how to, how to use probe lines effectively, how to organize them, how to put members of the public into a probe line, um, how to interact with canines. Um, that's something I'm really interested in. I'd, I'd like to work as a tech for canine teams. Um, and then a little bit of rigging for patient extractions. Um, and then basically like first aid and basic medical for um, avalanche victims. And it's all, it's all stuff that you've heard about and you've, if you've taken a rec one, it's all stuff that you've seen or done once or whatever. And it's all really perishable skills. It's all stuff that goes away really quickly. Okay. So for people listening to this and they're like, wow, okay, I think I get it. And I'd like to learn more. I'd like to maybe check this out, maybe get involved in my local search and rescue. Say a bit more about what some of these people or someone might actually be doing as they kind of take their first steps. Yeah. So before I get to the easy people who you just described, here's for the people that were listening to this podcast and you're like, yeah, I don't really think I'm cut out to be on search and rescue. Maybe you don't want to be on a search and rescue team. There's a good chance you bring assets to the table that would be of use to your local search and rescue team, because it's not just a bunch of cowboys running out there to save people's lives. Um, there's a lot of fundraising. There's a lot of organization, right? We have an accountant. We need an accountant. <laughs> we need marketing people. We need fundraising people, all of this stuff. And like, so I've recently stepped into a, we're calling it an IT role um, on our team, but it's basically just handling computer stuff for our team. And that has made me really aware of the number of things that aren't just like, I'm a badass in the mountains who's going to carry you out that are really, really relevant to making a SAR team run. So if you're like, no, I can't drop everything and go save, you know, I can't drop everything and run off into the mountains to help people. And I'm not really interested in that. And I'm intimidated by that. Um, but I like the idea of search and rescue. I want them to exist. I want to get plugged into them. I want to do these things. Like a lot of search and rescues have a nonprofit foundation connected to them that will have needs. They can be fundraising needs. They can be logistical needs. They can be bookkeeping needs. Chances are, if you are a blister, blister listener, you bring something to the table for a team, even if you're not at all interested in going into the field and helping people. So, we need more of those people because you get a lot of yahoos who want to do sexy shit in the woods. That's not what makes us our team run. So first of all, for those people, call us. We, we need you. We, you're an accountant. Please come here. <laughs> um, for the other people, for the people who are like, I am a competent recreationalist. I like to go hard. I like to help my community. I want to help people who are hurting in the backcountry. Awesome. Apply to your team figure out how it works and continue to hone your own skills to be that asset. Because we, we see it in this scenario of this very clear cut. There are rescuers and rescuees and I want to be a rescuer. But even if you don't actually become involved in your SAR team, even if like the schedule doesn't work for you or your job doesn't allow it or whatever, like having more of a, conscientious mindset to how you're recreating changes you from a liability to an asset, right? Scenes rarely happen in a vacuum. They don't happen in a vacuum. And so if you're in a party that an incident happens and you're not on SAR, but you listen to this podcast and became more dialed because of it, that's huge, yeah. right? If you listen to this podcast and go make yourself past the pro one standard for Avi Rescue, right? That's 50 by 50 meter slide path to burials. I think they're 1.5 to two meters deep in seven minutes, uh, searched, probed and shoveled. Like you should do that. If you're listening to this podcast and you tour, you should do that to yourself with someone screaming at you that your best friend is dying to make you frazzled. You should do that every year. I just really believe that and not enough of us are doing hard rescue skills. Um, and then all of the other stuff, all of the, like transporting someone 
building a shelter, building a fire, all of that stuff that you can become more dialed on yourself changes you in that situation from someone who's standing around in the way of rescuers being a net neutral or a net negative to someone who can be a huge help to them because there's never a scene we're on where we want less manpower. We want less organized people trying to help us. Um, so that's we like continue to grow as a recreationalist. Don't stagnate and like you can ski the same runs and ride the same bike trails, but having a growth mindset with your relationship to your proficiencies and this is nitpicky, but for me, I care about the speed of my transitions because of this. When I transition from skiing to skinning and back, and I care about the speed of my partner's transitions, and I care about wearing a helmet in the backcountry, all of these little things where I just think we very quickly are like, well, yeah, I'm just casually like, I'm not, I'm not a weight weenie. I'm not trying to race. So I, it doesn't matter like how efficient I am. I always take off my skis and sit on them to rip my skins. That can be fine. But if there's a slide and that's what your transition looks like, chances are you can't get back up or down to where you need to be quickly. Just be more dialed. It's really worth it. Um, and then the last thing I would say with your thinking about joining SAR is if you are not a bearded white dude, <laughs> you should really be thinking about joining SAR. We really need you as a bearded white dude on a team full of bearded white dudes. Most of us who have the same freaking color beard and are all the same height, right? Like we all wear the same size jacket and we all look about the same and we get our names confused on site. We need more people who aren't like that um, because diversity is a great buzzword, but what it actually means in a rescue environment is people who have different strengths and weaknesses and see the scene differently and see the dangers and see the risks and figure out how to manage them more effectively. And in my experience, like search and rescue and just rescue in general, ski patrols have been really homogenous. It's the same people making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so if you are a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're a queer person, all of those things, search and rescue teams often are shitty environments for you. I am sorry. I am working to change that. I really encourage you to join into some kind of some kind of rescue team. Um, we need you and it will be good for you. Hey man, thank you. This has been a cool week of just getting to kind of reconnect and catch up. <laughs> You've been doing your thing during the day. I'm trying to cut my stuff down at some point in, in the evening. And, but, uh, it's just been fun to kind of, yeah, talk about some of the old past glory days together at blister and, and, uh, learn more about what you're up to now. And, and again, I, just to clarify, I didn't want to have this conversation with you in particular, given that you are the master historian of all things SAR or something. I think what I thought was so compelling is like we said at the top, you are like so many of us and you've told your story really well. Like I was a guy that just got pretty passionate about different aspects of the outdoors and, and there's kind of been this progression. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to resonate because they've been where you have been, you know, at a particular stage of their life and, or maybe they're the 21 year old and they haven't thought about any of this yet. And this will get them thinking about this as a potential path. So, man, I think, uh, I think this has been really helpful and I've enjoyed it and enjoyed having you here in Crested Butte this week. And, uh, so yeah, thanks for all of it. Yeah. Thanks. It's been great to be back. It's wild to be adjacent to the the blister vortex once more it's been a minute it's it's wild how many things have changed and improved and how many things are still exactly the same <laughs> well hopefully when we go back to my house well the door won't be locked so you won't have <laughs> to try to figure out like what the combination is or something uh, as we were doing in bend that one trip and little bit of a teaser which is one of the funniest things that's happened this entire week, apparently you do have a product review coming. I don't know. Do you want to talk about it or do we just, 
Man, the uh, the the world of alternative foamy rubber sport shoes has either changed for the better or worse. And uh-huh. um, I can't wait to make my brief return to the hollowed pages of Blister <laughs> with a review of whatever abomination you handed me earlier today. We're just going to leave it at that. But yeah, stay tuned, people. Anyway, man, appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your experience and telling your story. And uh, hope to have you back in these parts uh, as soon as possible. You, you know there's a you know there's a room for you. Yeah, Crested Butte's pretty great. I think I'll be back. Okay. All right, deal. All right, man, you take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cy for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we would definitely appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And that will help us just keep this whole operation going and growing. Finally, don't forget to check out our upcoming Blister Summit. There's more information in the show notes to this episode and on the homepage of our website or just go to the navigation bar where it says Blister Summit. And then from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast where we have an amazing conversation about design, product design, and shoe design. And I promise you, if you have never run a day in your life, but you like to get into the details of design, you should 100% listen to my off-the-couch conversation tomorrow with the co-founders of Speedland, a new running shoe company. And... I think you'll thank me later. So it's a fantastic conversation. These two guys are really impressive. And I had a great time just talking product design with these two guys who have just an incredibly impressive background working for the biggest companies in the game. So check that out. That's on our Off the Couch podcast. And that drops tomorrow on Valentine's Day. So there you go. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Talk to you soon.